Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. So in the beginning readings of the numbers, um, how's that correlating with what we just read here in Hosea, the, the divorce, people not being people, now being a people, uh, and that promise, I'm, I'm, I missed a connection there. All righty. Well, as the invited guest, uh, t- take it away. <clears throat> All right. So it's an interesting, interesting point. So uh, first of all, the Haftorah cycles were designed years and years and years ago, hence Hosea was selected. But if you look carefully, you'll note that the counting cycle for numbers, first four books or so, covers essentially your counting people. When you're doing counting people, we're counting not just a random, you know, one, two, three, or five. You're counting a specific type of people, in this case, a firstborn or the selected people of God. So when we're discussing the concept of counting, it's the counting of Omer, the cycle which we're counting now for the cycles all the way up until Shavuot. It's a, it's a person counting or a human being counting process. The idea being that we are counting who are the sons of God and who are verses, actually not verses, or who isn't, but more likely amongst humanity, who are the sons of God, who are the children of God, who are the children of Israel. That's the idea. Well, when, when the rabbis re- discovered the section, well, wait a minute, or not discovered, but when they, when they studied it, so well, who are, the, who are God's sons, meaning who are counted and who are not? Hence, Hosea pops up. Hosea chapter one, uh, the latter half, and all the way through most chapter two, discusses the concept of being either I am God's or I am not God's. And the idea of God saying, hey, there's a whole group of people here that biologically should be theoretically mine, but aren't because they la- act like their mother. They are a people that don't follow or, or, or respond to me, God, they don't respond to my ways. They offer their own ways, their own culture. And he's instructing his children in Hosea 2 to essentially reject the actions of their mom, reject the actions of the culture they live in, reject the actions of the people, the nation they surround, that surrounds them, and focus their attention to who is truly responsible for their well-being. That's the idea. Hence, we have Messiah showing up on the scene, the same principle being taught in John chapter 1 and Romans 8 and, of course, Romans 9, that he, the whole purpose of, of the process of, is that he's giving us as human beings the right to be called the sons of God. That's the idea. So we get, regardless of our background, Hosea, Hosea's wife, regardless where we come from, we get to be included in that count process. That's the idea. That's the message or the core message which is being discussed here. That's why they're tied together. Does it make sense? Well, yeah. it, is an, it is an interesting aspect that you can be born into a family, but yeah. you may not stay in that family. Very interesting because you see that picture with the, uh, as it goes on in that passage of Romans 9 through 11, that yes, you may be born into the family, but you may get pruned out of the family, so to speak, off the tree. Yep. Uh, yes, Deborah, go ahead. Um, this might be silly, but you know, when I was doing my study, my Bible says sea cows that they use to cover the, um, <clears throat> the, the uh, boxes. 
the treasure. Yeah, I mean, the, all arc, the, stuff. the arc. That yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing about it is, is um, the sea. I was wondering how close they were to the sea, and then when I looked it up, it said that those particular cows were extinct. So I was wondering where'd they get them from, and then you know, um, I, I don't know. I remember your dad talking about it years and years ago when we first right. went over there. But I was wondering what your take was. So that is a controversy that's been around for probably 2,000 plus years. No one truly knows what that word means. All right. We guess. We just guess. So because Hebrew, the, the, the language had died out as a dead language for many, many centuries, no one knew how to read or pronounce it until the Germans, German Jews got together and German scholars, Christian scholars too got together to try to recreate the Hebrew language. Anything they could see within context of another passage, some of the language that translated it prior to, they can kind of get words worked out. And that's how we have a current modern-day Hebrew understanding or definition of words. The drawback is some words are used either rarely or there was no other translation in any of the language that correlated to that particular word. And sometimes they try to figure out by context, they had to take a word apart and dissect it from letter to letter to letter to figure out this root words. Sometimes they don't they don't know you know for certain. The Takash hides so in, 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 in a later variation of Hebrew, the more modern versions, they determined that the word has also been used of the language to describe a, 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 a water animal. That, that's, that, that's, that we're talking centuries and centuries later after the, the, the Tadak was written, that it had been used to describe a water animal at one point. Now, it's probably actually close to Messiah's time period. I think it was like a couple hundred, couple hundred years BC when they, when they had that translation of that word. And so they've applied that backwards. The drawback is, of course, it's gotten lots of controversy, lots of complaints. People saying, wait a minute, why would God use an unclean animal, a porpoise, and use its skin as a wrapping amongst the most holy of holy items that nothing else could touch? It's a dead, it's like no difference taking a pig skin and wrapping it around. Uh, it would make no sense, right? It's illogical. So in, 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 in the art scroll, the, 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 many, many, the JPS, I don't recall what they tread to the word to be off the top of my head. I've forgotten. I looked up years ago, but so the art scroll uses, they leave it as the word tahash, saying, we're not going to try to translate this word because we actually don't know what the word really means. We guess it. That's all we got. And it bothers modern Hebrew scholars and modern Hebrew Orthodox people to say, oh, no, it was for porpoise skins. They reel at that concept. It's no different than me saying, well, it's pig skin. And we wrapped it up in pig skin or, or, or human skin. We wrapped it in human skin. Same thing. It's really gross. You would never do that. It would make the item that's supposed to be holy completely and thoroughly unholy, unfit for, for anything. Uh, they destroyed products and, and other altars years later for that exact reason. So like of it being that unclean animal is pretty darn slim. Now, what is it? Who knows? Nobody knows. Whatever it is, it's probably something that existed, some animal existed near or around the area of Sinai. I don't know for certain. I, meaning within hunting distance, if it was a wild animal or a domestic distance, if they raised it. There are a number of extinct species of animals that used to live in the southern Israel desert. They no longer lived anymore. They're long since extinct. And some of them, they found the skeletons. Some of them were in fact clean animals. So. We don't know for certain, but the idea is it's probably most likely a wild, clean animal, but not necessarily a porpoise skin is highly unlikely. 
Makes sense. Well, yeah, because it wasn't by they weren't by the ocean. So how could it be? No, they weren't. So when it says sea cow or porpoise or whatever, it's like Sean said they used to be able to walk. So it got up and walked. No, I know. He's, I'm just kidding. He knows I know that. I, 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 I wouldn't know. <laughs> it said, I know you're looking for a covering and I'm going to be that. Right, right. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a long sense. It's a controversy that will not be solved until God comes to, hey, this is what the word means. Oh, or somebody discovers some, some hidden tablet somewhere buried in the sand that translates the word, some of the language. Now, now we know what it is. Until that's revealed, it's 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 just a it's it's just a guess. You can make make up any, any word you want and just insert it and decide and, and move on. Any other comments or questions? Hi, I do have a couple of questions. Um, so, why do we use the word? Uh, why do we call it numbers when it's in the wilderness? Is that something that's just transliterated through the years that we do that just i you know what i just answered my own question it's the same reason why we call genesis genesis and not bear sheep never mind thank you but i do have another <laughs> well, question no, uh, hold on hold on back up for the, it's it's not quite as simple as bear sheep and genesis bear sheep and genesis actually do make sense bear genesis makes means beginning bear sheep means beginning two different languages the word numbers versus women bar which is wilderness those do not translate. Um, the English uh, translators, when they named the books, the Jews didn't name them, uh, uh, tra and translators named them. They chose the book of Numbers because the first four chapters are dedicated to the topic of counting people and counting numbers. It's, it's subject-based, um, as opposed to Judaism does not do subject-based. They do the first semi-unique word. I say semi-unique because it does, there's sometimes words used later on. But it's, it's a, first what they consider a reasonably significant word. Hence, our Torah portions have names for them, uh, Shemini or, or Rubin Bar. They have names for them. It's the first word that's semi-unique to that passage. It's, it's just a different way of, of naming things. If, if, we read, if we read it in English, said, this is the book of the wilderness. And the first we did, read four chapters of counting people. We say, wait a minute, this is, what, what does it do with the wilderness? This is counting. And since that's why, you know, translators in, in other languages said, we'll just call it numbers. Thank you for that. Then the other thing that I wanted to ask was, uh, would, I've studied where the way that they've camped in the formations uh, would also correlate possibly with the winds, the east, the west, the south, and the north. Do you have any input into that? So drawing up here real quick is pretty simple. I think Jeff probably has many copies of this. We've done it over the years. I can't how many times you've done it. You have is the Levi is really, really close to camp. So you have Aaron and Moses on this by the way. So sorry, I should have a little compass here. So north, east, west, south. R rough, rough, you know, so Aaron and Moses are hanging around here. We have Marari, uh, I forget the guy's name. We have uh, Gershon. John, Kohath. And then we have outside the Levites, you have obviously you have Judah, um, Issachar, uh, Zebulun. Then you've got uh, Reuben. Uh, who was it? Reuben. Uh, who were they? Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. I'm just going to abbreviate the letters. Okay. 
And then we had further out from outside of Gershon, you got Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. And then the north side, of course, you have Dan, it was Asher and Naphtali. So Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. How funny. Actually, abbreviates his Dan. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, it's coincidence. So that's the general idea of how they were camping. They didn't quite travel like this. The belief is they traveled and they actually physical traveling. They had this camp move out uh, as far as Judah's side move out. And you had some people, so some of the, the components of Kohath, you know, started to move out with them. And you had Reuben. They had the individual camps following. So they kind of traveled in like this, this columnized type of line as opposed to staying in their massive shape, you know, traveling it out. No one knows for certain. We, for the most part, guess on how that's done, but that's the general idea. It, some, some scholars have said, no, 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 it makes more mental sense to not to travel in a massive line. It makes more mental sense, meaning, meaning, I say mental sense, meaning it matches their personal theology. So don't confuse a human being's theology with fact. They aren't related, okay? So someone's personal theology thinks that they should have stayed in this mass formation and translate and move as if they were one massive body. Oh, hold on, Isaac. Were you, you probably that was Isaac? Right, right. Right. So Isaac pointed out if you tried to maintain this formation, it could never physically work. If you, let's pretend we have a big mountain hanging out here. Well, to move, that's the kind of shift this way north and go travel east and it doesn't make a lot of sense because humans don't move that way. We are a massive conglomerate moving things, just like a a flowing mass, right? So if we tried to match this person, individual's theology of this massive thing moving, reality is it'd be a all hodgepodge mix. You'd have some Reubenites and Simeonites hanging out here because they were they they were a little bit slow. Um, some Naphtali might move a little further forward, while while Gershom, while they were a little bit on the really slow side, they were they were trying behind. It gives us this funky mix. So this theology, though it sounds great, they like the idea because it seemed to make sense with Ezekiel's vision of the of of the chariot wheel thing. Um, it's highly unlikely because humans aren't that way. Most likely, though, they camped this way. They travel differently. Now, whether or not the camps correlate to particular wind patterns, uh, I wouldn't know. Because realistically, every space on Earth has its own unique wind pattern. Northern Hemisphere, we'll put this the equator, right? Northern Hemisphere, most uh, 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 things, most um, weather patterns in the the top half of Northern Northern Hemisphere tend to travel uh, from west to east. In, in, in wind patterns. And then the bottom half of the northern hemisphere, it tends to travel from east to west as far as wind patterns. So it'd be like this funny swirling thing. The southern hemisphere is, is inverted. It, it has its own you know, pattern, which I don't remember off the top of my head what it is in certain areas, but they, they have an, an inverted swirling pattern. So to say it matches the wind patterns, probably not. What does make in Judaism tends to follow, they say, forget all this idea of, of people traveling or forget the idea of people, you know, in either even weather for that matter. They say, forget that. It has nothing to do with any of that stuff. They argue it has this. Now, I'm not saying they're right or wrong. This is what they, what they argue when you read some of my paraphernalia that I have written up here. 
So in, in the case of, of um, one of the, the most common Judaism philosophies, they say, wait a minute, we have the sense of front, right, left, and back. So let's put a person, we'll put, I'm going to look top down. She's so looking from like space down the human being's head. The person's head, we'll put his eyes on this side. His, his arms are kind of sticking out here. He has wiggly arms. Um, so his face is facing east. His right hand is south. His left hand is north. And his backside is west. This is their philosophical or theological concept of a human being. So, and they transit assign this to God. So God is facing east. As a result, his entrance, the doorway, the doorway here to his tabernacle is his throne, is facing east, which means you as a person, when you're standing here, let's say I'm going to face God, I'm going to stick figure here, I'm going to talk to God and face him, I am facing physically west, facing and looking at God. Now, the reason they assign it this way, it makes sense to them in, in the Jewish theology, is that Jewish time starts and ends with sunset. So west is what we look at to watch the sun go down. And so they focus the idea of being west. In the case of Ezekiel, he, he's, he's lamenting and complaining with the fact that the people themselves who are supposedly facing west, facing God, facing the entrance, they themselves in Ezekiel's time are facing this way so God is at their back. So you're, you, have, you, you are literally, God is here and I'm facing that way because I'm looking at the rising sun. And that was a complaint. God saying, this is disgraceful. You don't do this. I am here. Turn your hide around and look at me. Don't look at the rising sun. You look at me, God, over here on this side. Hence why the Jewish theology makes more consistent sense with our biblical text. Does that make sense? Hope it makes sense. As opposed to weather patterns or traveling patterns, the idea is that I am looking, I am pretending that the throne, the temple of God is actually God himself. I realize it's just a, it's just a representation. That, 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 so when I'm going to face God, I'm going to face him west at the sunrise, then, or sorry, sunset, as opposed to the sunrise at the east, which is to my back. Most of pagan theology, pagan uh, philosophies, they flip it around. They like the rising sun. Ooh, how great and wonderful it is. Let's bow the rising sun. And God says, forget that. That's that doesn't mean anything. I'm over here. Face that direction. Face west. Face me. Face the setting sun. Yeah. Oh, Lorianne asked a question. So if that's the case, why do we face east when we do our prayers? The Shema, the nature. That's an excellent question. And that comes from Solomon, King Solomon. King Solomon, years and years later, let me erase this stuff because it's not relevant right now. Although um, uh, one thing he, to consider is, is that if you're in India, you'd be facing west. That's true. <laughs> You're facing west. So, in, in, so if we have, let's, let's. I'm going to make this a drawing. So, this is you know planet Earth. Okay, we're going to put Jerusalem right there, big J. I, as human being, I happen to live right here. Uh, Jim Schmuley lives down here. Bob Schmuley, his brother, lives over here, and Robert the Third Schmuley lives down here. I got I ran out of names. So. And Solomon said, hey, face this place, this spot, face here, face Jerusalem. So theoretically, if I'm hanging out here, I'm going to make my little compass. Oh, my compass over here. So north, south, east, west. I'm going to face in this kind of 
southeast direction toward Jerusalem if I'm hanging out here. This guy's going to face like a, a northeast direction. This guy's going to face kind of a, 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 a northwesterly direction. And then this guy is southwest to face Jerusalem. This is what Solomon gave. In Judaism, meaning Orthodox Judaism, they say, forget all that. They say, everybody, regardless where you're at, you face east. Now, in Judaism, the Orthodox Judaism excuses this by saying, well, because the earth's round, eventually, let this person's you know, signs, light and sight would eventually reach Jerusalem because Earth's a globe. It's, it's a round ball. And that's the, theory. that's the theory. Mind you, this is their theology. This is the problem when you have theology mixing with fact. Men's theology are kind of weird. And so this person, also the same philosophy, their idea is that they would circle around, but realistically, of course, they're really up north. They kind of should do a slight angle. So can, it kind of can, can eventually get down to Jerusalem. That's their idea. That's their excuse. So if I was hanging out right here, let's pretend I was in Damascus, right next to Jerusalem. Put a big D here for Damascus. Of course, assuming they don't kill me because they're all Muslim now. But in their instance, I'd also have to face east according to Jewish philosophy, even though Jerusalem's directly behind me. So the Jewish theology, no offense to the theology. I'm not trying to criticize the people who thought it or their philosophies or the beliefs, but does it make logical sense to a normal thinking person? So hence, we in the United States, for the most part, I'm going to erase these lines here. I'm going to confuse my diagram. For the most part, U.S. is generally in this, I mean, this blob here. Yeah, this Florida. There's a blob over here, and we'll put, make like California's far edge, far edge side there. We're generally on the on on. Uh, we're generally west of Jerusalem. So, for the most part, anywhere in the United States, facing east is kind of close to facing toward Jerusalem. So it works reasonably okay. If I was in Europe, like this blob over here, in Europe, and Italy's boot boot there. I'm not very good boot drawer. And little England dot dot here. If I was in Europe, uh, for the most part, facing east doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I'm facing more. Realistically, I should be facing more southeast as opposed to east. But it has all these different theologies. But and and if I was in Russia, let's say I'm you know somewhere here in Siberia, heaven forbid. Um, as in Siberia, Russia, I should be facing Jerusalem. But they still they tell you no 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 face east, which makes no sense to me. The facing east to my my personal Daniel Ages theology. This is just me speaking. Is an insult to my God. If I face Jerusalem, that's not. But me facing east, regardless of where I'm at, that's insulting to my God, which is what he complained about with Ezekiel. Does that make sense? Any other comments or questions about that? Nope. Thank Good you. Good deal. Hey, I'm already out of time. Uh, actually, uh, <laughs> Kofi's got a question. Go ahead, Kofi. Uh, I don't know if I missed something, but most of the tribes are counted once, and Levi was counted twice. Is that accurate? Uh, not exactly. So Levi was counted separately. So let's erase this real quick because we'll count. This is an interesting phenomenon. And again, like most things, there's a Jewish theology and Christian theology which don't jive. Okay, so there's some differences here. But when you count Levi, so first of all, all tribes are counted. So you have all of Israel, 
they're all being counted. In this instance, mind you, there are they're going, there's a second census takes place. This is the first one, yeah. The second census takes place years and years later. So um, so this is, this is the first census that takes place. They have I'm 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 gonna shorten this roughly. I don't the exact numbers. So roughly six hundred thousand people, give or take, of males fighting age to so 20 years and up. Now, does that mean a 99-year-old man's going to go out there and fight? Well, probably not physically, but if he physically could, maybe he can, whatever. 600,000 ma- males. So this is males. Roughly of 20 years and up. That's the rough, the rough age as far as these males are concerned. It counts everybody visual except not Levi. Levi is not counted amongst these 600,000 people, right? They're a separate tribe, and we'll discuss the two theologies why. So first of all, Levi is counted separately, and Levi is counted at, at it's two months, was it one month or two months? I think it's one month old. I'll double, I'll double check that. It's one month old as opposed to 20 years old and up. So Levi is one month, and, and these are males. So these are also males, but not females being counted here in Levi. And Israel counts roughly 600,000 people. Israel also, although it's not recorded in our texts directly, it's in, recorded indirectly. In the counting process, 600,000 males, they noted who was firstborn versus who was not. So amongst the firstborn, our Bibles record roughly uh, 22,000, I think it's 273 uh, firstborn. Well, oh, she's, she's my wife's making fun of my, my handwriting. Anyway, so roughly a firstborn of Israel, these are, these are non-Levites, okay, non-Levites. Now, Levi, when they count the one month and up, the Bible records 22,000 people. Now, I, I do realize those of you who are good accountants would say, wait a minute, that doesn't add up. Because when you add up Levi, you get 22,300. But I'm not going to argue. So there's probably just some, some, a, a scribal error in counting. I'm not going to argue that detail. So in the Bible, then it goes to process. Like, well, I have uh, a two, 273 more firstborn in Israel than I do in Levi. So God's saying, I'm going to take Levi in place of the firstborn male to so serve me. Now, this is where the theology shifts. In up to this point in time, of this point in our Torahs, the philosophy being of all religious cultures, not just Israel, but all cultures were firstborn males of a family, regardless of what family you came from, their job was to be a priest to that family or to the, to the community or whatever. That was their task. That was their function. So all firstborn males, mind you, not firstborn females, firstborn males, they were assigned to be priests. That was their normal function. And our Torah records that. Uh, the time leading up to the golden calf. It ha- didn't happen yet. But when they were preparing the mountain, preparing Mount Sinai, the firstborn males were the ones who were to prepare, as she records it, to prepare the offerings. Firstborn of all of Israel, they were to prepare the offerings, preparing for the Ten Commandments and God, you know, spilling out his Ten Words, or Ten's comments or categories. So you have to argue it. Um, and that was their assigned task. Now, the golden calf screwed all that up. Now, the golden calf, now this is where Judaism jumps in. So because the golden calf, God, I mean, Levi with, with Moses, Moses said, hey, who's with me? Who's, who's with God? Who's not? And the tribe of Levi followed Moses. Jesus says, therefore, Levi earned the right to be priests for God. 
Okay. And that's when they argue the case. Fischer does not, does not believe that or argue that point, but Judaism does. And so they say, because that event, these males were then God decided in his head that he would swap them. He would take, because these, these firstborn Israel were not really that great of people to begin with. Uh, they weren't, weren't, weren't four or four Moses or four God when Moses came down from the mountain with a golden calf problem. And maybe some were participants in it. I don't really know. But Levi was, and they, said, and they said, okay, at that point, God made his decision. He would take Levi in place of the firstborn. All right. So that's how Levi got counted. The, 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 there's some funny numbers here, some people's different belief system. Christianity does not take that as a, a reason, meaning they don't say that because the golden calf is the reason Levi was taken. They acknowledge it was taken as the firstborn. But the reason why, Christian does not argue why. It just argue it was. So it's a different philosophy. Judaism is really, really big on merit, like earning things, as opposed to Christianity is not so much earning, more of just giving. It's kind of a strange, two different theologies. It's, I, I, don't, I, 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 I can't say you subscribe to one or the other. One just more of a, a gift from God type of concept. And then it's more of a, no, I earned it kind of a concept. And I can't say who's right or wrong. But so Levi is just counted once, but they're just counted differently. Does that make sense? Yes. Any other comments or questions? Uh, yes, Ann's got one, and then Sean's got one. Go ahead, Ann. Okay. Um, in the in the beginning, when you were first, uh, when Jeff was first reading, each. Um, tribe had his own standard. Now, was that a coat of arms? That is an excellent question. And I'm sure many of you have been to different churches and groups who've seen like banners of the tribes. Here's this banner. And there's a banner over here. My mom made a few different kinds. And most of those banners, whether they're colors or pictures, mostly depict pictures, images of something. Uh, a lion for Judah, for example, or snake for Dan. These banners, these are based off of the, the for the most part, not 100%, most part, the blessings are from Jacob in the book of Genesis. Now, realistically speaking, we have no clue. No one really knows. They could be a letter. It could be a color. It could be an image. It could be nothing at all. We don't know what it actually was. So what the banners looked like, no one really knows. All we know, they had something to indicate who they were. And I, we could debate the reasons as to why you know, they were, you know, there was the, the primary banner and the two sub banners underneath them because there were three tribes. They were grouped in three tribes as far as how they were organized that way. But um, in, in the theology of the book of Genesis, that these are where this Im images come from, that's fine. You can argue that. And maybe that's right. Maybe it's wrong. No one really knows. We do have some indication there may be some kind of an animal type of symbol associated with each tribe that only comes from uh, um, uh, Titus when he sacked the temple and took the, took the menorah and brought it to, back to Rome. Well, the small, tiny depiction of that little image carved in Roman carvings has tiny little animals, I think there's six of them, on the bottom of the menorah that was, th that was there. And the theory being that those animals, though, I can't tell which animals what, they kind of look like this. It's like how I draw a dog, looks like a horse. It's the same thing. <laughs> I can't tell what's what. But these little animals up there, 
and the belief, the theology being that each of those animals on that little menorah on the base of the menorah, that little depiction, um, represent one of the tribes, and they only show the six on this side because these six would be covered. They're the back side; you can't see them. And that's where they, they got the they got theology that it probably is some type of an animal on each tribe, but no one knows for certain, or even who's who. So that the idea of what the banner looked like, we don't know. We just don't know. We have ideas, guesses, and opinions. We don't know. Like for example, a lot of people associate Dan with the snake, right? Because you know the blessing of the snake. That's great and all for Genesis, but in Deuteronomy, he call, he's called a lion's whelp. So why would I have Dan as a snake versus a lion? I don't know. Just because I chose one, right? So it's me, me choosing and assigning based on my theology, my ideas, as opposed to fact, as far as what is versus what isn't. So it's strictly opinion. Don't, don't, don't jump too deeply or too hard on people's opinions. It's just an opinion. And maybe some of them are right. Maybe some of them are wrong. doesn't mean a whole lot. Whatever it is, what really matters is that, that since our God is a God of words, not a God of pictures, he drew word, he, drew, he, he discovered himself, he disclosed himself, sorry, not discovered, disclosed himself with words, not with drawings. It would be really easy for like numbers one through four. I could do the entire, those four chapters with a single diagram. And, and I, I would save God a lot of time. Say, forget the words. Here's a diagram. Yeah, picture worth a thousand words type of thing. Here it is. We'd have moved on to chapter five. Okay. It was really simple, but he didn't. He just uses words to disclose himself. So he is, he's, he's the, well, that's what he is. He's a God of words. So that's how we understand him, know him. So the symbols are of less value based on compared to a God said, I'm not giving you a drawing. I'll give you a picture. You probably bowed down and worship to it anyway if I did. So here's words six. You can't bow down to words, although some people still do. What's, oh, he does do Kaisic structures. That's true. Which he, he does play with words and, and symbols. That's true. So you can, you can do a lot of uh, manipulating with words, which is kind of fun. I'm not a, I'm not a word person. Jeff is. He's good at that. I, I do pictures. <laughs> Stick figures at that. It, uh, so uh, see, thanks for, uh, for, first of all, Anne, did that answer your question or kind of answer it? She said yes. Okay, good. So uh, Sean, you had a comment. What was your, what was your comment? It, uh, <clears throat> I noticed the word Baal being flowed around it in there. It's got to have some kind of connection there with the, the numbers and, uh, and, and the camps. Can you elaborate on that? Okay, so in our Haftorah portion in Hosea, um, it discusses that in particular. Um, so Haftorah, so, so uh, it, we're calling, calling, me, uh, calling God Ishi uh, instead of Bali. Uh, so that, so we're dealing, dealing with uh, pagan gods. So um, they, I'm going to spell this. Don't forget, I'm not worshiping a pagan god. Okay. <laughs> uh, ish, uh, come on. Ish. Bali Ishi. In Hosea, uh, in, in, in chapter two, it's a tale in chapter two, or letter half it, discusses these two words is, is brought up. And so the principle being the Bali, now, in English, some of our translations in English, they got a little, a little weird because they're not, the, the translators didn't quite get it, understand the comprehension right. So Bali is, is more, it commonly means husband. So it still means husband, but more specifically, my master. Uh, oops, M-A-S-T-E-R, spell the word master. 
That's typically what the word Bali means. Now, it is also translated as my husband, which is fine. That's not saying you're wrong. And it does mean my husband, but it, it, is a, a, it is a specific type of husband, a master of the household, master of the family. Ishi is more accurate translated as my man, which is different. We think, well, what's the difference? Well, it's different in conceptually as far as how it's treated. Ishi is, is a more endearing term for husband. It is the, like you, the, for example, I, I call her sweetie on time, right? So we have like pet names to give our, hus- our, our, our spouses. That's the same concept. This is God saying, hey, Israel, when you choose to follow me, my pet name is Ishi. I am your man. I'm your, I'm your man, <laughs> but I'm your husband. I'm your husband, man. As opposed to the pagan philosophy of males as the master of the house, the dominant player, the meat person is in charge, everything goes according to them. That's more of my master, the non-endearing term. Yeah, yes, you can call me Ishi if you want to, dear. I'm not saying you should or shouldn't, but that's your business. I may not pay attention to it, but anyway. <laughs> anyway, well, I'm teasing me. Anyway, so, um, so, so, so that's the two concepts. Now, bear in mind, okay, I'm not, this is not a criticism. It's not a condemnation. It's not a judgment, nothing of sort, okay? But you will note that in some religious sectors, both in a Judeo Christian, and a non-Judeo-Christian philosophy, this Bali master kind of concept is pretty dominant, all right? It, it, even amongst Christianity, it's still pretty dominant. Amongst Judaism, it's still pretty dominant. Um, Islam, very, very, very dominant. This, even though we don't think, of, well, they're not calling it Bali. No, they're not using the, per, the name Baal. As, as in, I'm telling you, this is my God, my type of like a theological worshiping of my God, but I'm treating my man like he is, all right? And this is not a consistent philosophy with our Christian understanding or biblical text or Messiah's attitude. Messiah said, oh, no, no, no. If you want to be this, you're actually a servant. That is the function of the my man who serves their family, not the one who's in control or dominant, as in the Bali is, but rather the one who is endearing and is a servant of my family. As of, so I, 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 you, the idea of being a Christian and Judeo-Christian philosophy, more Christian as opposed to Judaism, because Judaism has its own weirdness at certain times the last few thousand years in their definitions. But the idea being that if you're going to be the head of the household, that means you're going to put yourself at the lowest position possible. You hit the bottom, you're beneath everyone. That puts you the head of the household. It puts you the servant. It puts you as the endearing Ishi, which God says, put me there. That's where I belong. I, 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 I am your servant, and as a result, mimic me, therefore, serve one another. The same principle. Does that make sense? So there are two different concepts of what husband means. There's one who thinks they're in charge or is treated like they're in charge and to control, and one that is the servant and then the endearing husband. Okay? Hopefully it makes kind of somewhat sense. In the comments, a question about, about uh, we don't typically use the term my master in modern day terms. I don't think of like, you know, I mean, they had a household kind of thing, but 
that's usually not common in our Western culture philosophy to think of husband as the master per se. The husband may be a head of a household, but they're not really a master so much anymore in, in, in Western culture. Uh, in the comments on this, to- this topic. Okay, well, I have one more question. Go ahead. Yeah, from uh, David. I, I just had a, 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 a quick um, food for thought. You know, we were talking about the flags or the... Um, yeah. Uh, so it, it, it just seems to me, like as I've read this in the past and just thinking in my mind, thinks in pictures as we all do. And I was just thinking, you know, when you got a million people out there in the desert and I'm like, okay, now where do we go here? We've arrived at the spot. Where do we go? So when I think about their standard, you know, or their flag, I, uh, to me, no matter where it went in the future with symbols and lions and whatever they decided to put on Mm -hmm. it, it seems to me the most logical thing is obviously they'd be a huge color and a very distinct colors and something that wouldn't contrast with the sky or the hills as in maybe a bright red or a bright yellow. And so there'd be these bright flags, four of them, so that when they're still a mile away, they know exactly where they need to gather to set up their camp, north, south, east, and west, where at that distance, you know, animal stick figures, uh, symbols, letters, you're not going to see that from a distance, but a large flapping color, you're definitely going to see. That we'll was see. just my That's thoughts. actually, yep. You have, a, you have an excellent thought. Um, a lot of rabbinical traditions have actually recorded that concept as well. They said, forget the symbols, forget the, the image of this image of that. They said, most likely, it's a massive color. Because you can see a color from a distance. Even though there's dust in the air, people, animals are yelling and screaming, whatever else they're doing. There's, uh, kids are screaming, yelling, I lost my whatever, I forgot my this, so-and-so hit me. All those problems that happen with families. You know, you forgot the cow. It's down now. The cow's running away. You can always see a color. And so most of the rabbinical traditions, as opposed to the Christian traditions, most of the traditions said, forget the symbol, forget the animal, forget the image. It's probably a color. Some bright, big fabric color makes the most amount of sense. Because you can see it from a far distance, you know, where you belong. If you hesitate, everybody's trying to out to go potty and you go off and go in the bushes or I guess behind a rock, don't have bushes there, and come back and say, now, where is everybody? I don't know. Hey, the color's way over there. It's two miles down the road. Quick, start running. And, and so you can see the color pretty quickly. And that's where Judaism, most Jewish rabbis have argued is probably nothing to do with the symbols from Genesis, the blessing, the new sword. It's probably a color would make the most of a sense as far as logic speaking. But again, that's our opinions. They're just opinions. You're, 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 you're in big com- or common company there, Dave. <laughs> a lot of people happen to agree with you. It's most likely a bright color of some form. Because clearly they could dye things red and purple and blue. So they had the ability to color stuff. So it's not that hard necessarily to imagine they could probably have other colors and mixtures of colors to make things. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O, hallel.info. Hallel.info.